Daniel chapter 10. We'll be starting in the first verse and reading through the end of the chapter. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word, and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with the gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face is like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and to the sound of his words like the noise of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and when I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, give heed to the words that I speak to you, and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to befall your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was dumb. And behold, one like in the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again the one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I am through with him, lo, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these, except Michael, your prince. That chapter is the clearest illustration in all the Bible of what is being called today territorial spirits. And I want us to think about this for a little while this morning so that we're not naive about what God might be teaching the church about overlooked spiritual realities. And because I don't want us to... Uh, 
be naive in jumping on the bandwagon of anything that happens to come along and be said to be spiritual truth that doesn't really tally with the Bible. I believe that there are such a thing as territorial spirits. And I want us to, as a church, understand how to come to terms with their reality and how to pray in view of their reality, how to worship, how to think, how to relate this reality to other parts of Scripture and truth. Before we get into Daniel 10 and ask those questions, I want to give you a flavor about what I mean and what's going on. This book by Peter Wagner is probably the most recent book on the issue called Engaging the Enemy, of subtitle How to Fight and Defeat Territorial Spirits. Forward by John Dawson of, of YWAM. Wagner says that as the church enters the 90s, he thinks that on the front burner of the church is going to be the whole issue of spiritual warfare at the macro level, that is, engaging these realities called territorial spirits, principalities, powers, world rulers of this present darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places that have been assigned by Satan, the prince of demons, to harass, oppress, darken, defeat, corrupt, ruin territories or regimes or realms or institutions. So he thinks that one of the things that will rise to the fore as we move through the 90s will be more overt conflict between believers and this level of demonic reality. Let me broaden out his assessment of what God's doing in the last 40 years. You weigh his words. They're not biblical words. They're one man's attempt to get a handle on God's work today. He says that in the 50s, God put on the front burner of the church evangelism, both at home and abroad, and missions began to churn, and people began to think more outreach. Then the 60s, he believed, was the day, the time when the church experienced a rising sense of need to engage with the problems of the poor and the oppressed and social issues. The 70s, he believed, brought the seeds of a new prayer movement that is still burgeoning and growing today all over the world, especially in southern Korea, people of South Korea, people think of that land as the place where this movement was highlighted. And the 80s, he thinks, was a time when the Holy Spirit pushed the issue of the supernatural dimension of ministry onto the burner of the church in terms of prophecy and healing. And that the 90s will be this macro emphasis on uh, fighting territorial spirits. That's his understanding of what God's doing today. And we need to consider whether that's so. Now, of course, spiritual warfare is not a new thing. That's been around as long as Satan and humans have been around Genesis 3. What's new is this emphasis on the territorial dimension of high-ranking evil spirits. 
and the engagement of them in spiritual warfare so that they are somehow defeated or bound or constricted and then the area is more free and open and responsive to the gospel. So let me illustrate from a story of the kind of thing that you can read uh, dozens of stories about in here. In uh, 1978, the World Cup, which is the, the biggest sporting event in the world, most Americans don't even know what it is, which shows how incredibly provincial we are. We think the Super Bowl is something, just because little, little America is interested in it. The World Cup is the biggest sporting event in the world, soccer, in case you didn't know that. And it's, it was taking place in Cordoba, Argentina. And, uh, of course, tens of thousands of people were flocking there. And uh, Christians, always being on the alert to how to spread the gospel to people from all over the world, were there. And uh, YWAM had 200, 200 missionaries there on the streets, with John Dawson leading them. He's now in Los Angeles as the YWAM director there. And they began to pass out Spanish-speaking tracts and preach, and it was awful. I'm just quoting stories from this book here. And uh, nobody was taking the tracks. They would throw them down. They'd laugh. They wouldn't even listen. They passed by the street corner preachers. There was a kind of listlessness and powerlessness in the preaching. And these 200 missionaries were very discouraged and wondered what in the world was wrong. And so they decided to call off their witnessing for a day and pray and fast, which is a good idea. So they got together and they sought the Lord and his power and insight into the obstructions to this effort. And uh, the story goes that they discerned, they don't say how, they discerned that over Cordoba there was a spirit. And the spirit was mainly one of pride and it not only dealt with individuals in making us wrestle with our own egos, but rather it saturated the culture to such a degree that there was materialism and sophistication and fashion consciousness and a pride in position and possessions and appearance. And it just seemed to them that the place was just infested with a proud, self-exalting, self-conscious, self-preoccupied pride. And they prayed how to respond to that. And they believed that the way to respond to it was humility. They thought, now, if there is a spirit of pride who, who thinks that he can get victory in this place by infesting everybody and everywhere with self-exaltation and pride, then maybe the way to break the power of that spirit would be to humble themselves publicly. So what they did, 200 of them, was to fan out across the central mall area and uh, get out on their faces and put their face on the ground and start praying out loud with, with all the people around, like at Rosedale or any other place, just get out in the mall and start praying out loud that Jesus would come and reveal himself to proud Cordoba. And it says in the story that a breakthrough came immediately. Large and curious crowds began to assemble and people took the tracks. They even asked the people to autograph the tracks. When John Dawson began to preach in the plaza of St. Martin, the crowd, many of them, fell on their knees, confessing their sins and crying out for help. And the final assessment by Dawson was the intimidation of the enemy was broken along with our pride. Now, there's just one little illustration of what's being called today 
um, spiritual warfare against territorial spirits. There are numerous major evangelists in South America especially and in East Africa that take as their strategy to move into a territory before they preach, pray and fast for several weeks, seek to discern what unique or special kind of oppression is lying and blinding this area, these institutions and these regimes here, and then when they think they discern the nature of that evil power and spirit to serve notice on that spirit that its power is broken by the blood of Jesus, and once it is broken, they move in, preach with results that they claim are staggeringly greater than had they begun to preach without that initial confrontation. Ninety years ago, S.D. Gordon said, Intercession is winning the victory over the chief, and service is taking the field after the chief is driven off. Now, that's the, that's the strategy that Peter Wagner believes will become increasingly prominent in the evangelism of the 1990s. So that gives you a flavor of what is being talked about today in terms of territorial spirits and spiritual warfare against them. Now let's go to Daniel 10. And let Daniel and God, through this experience, teach us how much of this may be so and what kinds of pointers there are from this text as to how we should respond to this claim. Verse 1. A vision is given to Daniel, and it's a vision of conflict, of war, and it is so stunning and so great and so powerful that it almost does Daniel in physically and emotionally. It says in verse 1, second half of the verse, that he understood it, but when you get down to verse 12, it says that he set himself to understand it. And I try to put those two together. Now, what does that mean? He, he understood it when he saw it, and, and, and yet it was right then when he began to pray and fast that he was setting himself to try to understand it. And I think the simplest explanation is to say that he understood it in part and he didn't understand it in part. That is, if you get a vision, you can probably say, uh, that's a statue. That's silver. That's gold. That's the head. That's the foot. I see that. I understand that. But what's it all about? So there's a sense in which he probably got it, in the sense that it was not a haze to him. It had reality to him. There was understanding up to a point. And now, something inside of Daniel said, this is tremendously important for the future of Israel. I need to know the truth about what's being revealed here, so that I can minister in the light of truth to my people. Verse 2 describes what he did. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning, crying. Three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat, wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. There was something about this vision that laid hold on Daniel in a tremendous way. Three weeks of a modified fast, and he wept the whole time. This is there's something very moving and powerful about this vision. At the end of three weeks, verse 4 says, He went out by the river Tigris, the Tigris River, and the vision of a great heavenly being came to him. Let's read that in verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with gold of Uphaz, 
His body was like beryl. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the noise of a multitude. In other words, get the picture now. The, the size, the scope, the power of this being was such that when he spoke, it was like the Metrodome cheering at one of the games of the World Series. So this is not a small sound. It's like you have a conversation and your partner sounds like the roar of 55,000 people and you might be stunned. You might fall on your face. You might tremble and cry and fear. And he did. Verse 7 says, just to show you how powerful this was, even the people who were with him, the men who were with him, who could not see the vision, trembled all over and ran away to escape what was happening. They didn't even see it. It was just the force of it. The power of it was there, quite apart from whether you could see the vision. And then to make matters worse... In verse 10, after he had lost his color and lost his strength and fallen down on his face, a hand, a hand comes out of nowhere and touches him. And he shook terribly on his hands and knees. So you picture Daniel, this is like a terrified little kid on his hands and knees, just kind of shocked out of his emotional mind by the reality of what was going on here, and he just was almost undone. I, I mention this in detail because the Bible does, and because I, I want you not to play with God. You know, there are a lot of us who say, boy, if I could just have a vision, if I could just be a prophet, I could just this. You, you don't know what you are toying with. I mean, if you're ready to be so scared by a word of God that you cry for three weeks and fast and pray. And then as a result of your fasting and praying, have a vision that knocks you flat on the ground and a hand comes out of nowhere and touches you so that you shake violently all over, then maybe go on. But be careful that you don't think God is some tame lion. Verse 11 I don't know whether he had changed the tone of his voice when he said this. I, I think so, probably, so that he didn't sound exactly like 55,000 people when he said, Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. The word there, greatly loved, um, in your version might be esteemed or something like that. It's, it's, it's a word that means treasured, desired, precious. Oh, man greatly loved. Give heed to the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And then verse 12, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to understand and humble yourself before your God, that's the fasting, your words, now note that, because verse 2 didn't say he prayed, this says he prayed. So he was praying for three weeks. That's tremendously important because this sermon is really a sermon about prayer, not angels. Your words, your prayer have been heard and I have come because of your words. Now note that. That's wonderful. It's awesome. Put it together with verse 11. Verse 11 says, I, we're talking this major heavenly being, I have been sent 
Now, who's, who's the sender? Who do you think? God. That's what I think. God is the sender. I have been sent by God. Well, why did God do that? Why did God dispatch from the hosts of heaven this glorious being with a face like lightning, eyes like torches, hands like bronze, and a voice like the Metrodome? Why did he do that? Answer, verse 12, I have come because of your words. A man praying and fasting for three weeks unleashed power from heaven. God dispatched this angel because Daniel was wrestling for his people in a vision, trying to understand the truth of God and just praying and fasting and crying out to God. I have come because of your words. Now notice verse 12. From the first day that you humble yourself before the Lord. Your words, your prayers have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Now that was three weeks ago that he began to pray. From the first day, three weeks ago, when you began to pray, God heard immediately and I was immediately dispatched. So don't think, the point is, don't think that because I'm coming three weeks after you began, that God couldn't hear for three weeks. That God is somehow slow to hear, slow to respond. Mark this for your prayers. God heard immediately and dispatched him on the very day. Same day, letter in, letter out, like an order service. But he didn't get there. For three weeks. Why not? Verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. 21 days. The very three weeks that you were wrestling and praying, I was wrestling. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And that's why I'm here. Now, here we have, in verse 13, the clearest reference in all the Bible to a territorial spirit. The prince of the kingdom of Persia fought with the angelic being of God for three weeks. And when Michael, another angel, was released to fight with this angelic being who speaks like the Metrodome, they overpowered the prince of the kingdom of Persia and he came on with his mission and finished it. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. What does that mean? I think the most natural meaning of the prince of the kingdom of Persia is that there are evil angels, evil demonic powers, demons, principalities, powers, world rulers of this present darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places that are somehow related to or assigned to regimes, kingdoms, territories, institutions, 
And their job is to darken them and hinder them and obstruct them and corrupt them and make them not work, bring misery into them. Now, unless you think that's the only one, let's look at verses 20 and 21 to get another one of these territorial spirits. Then the messenger from God said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. So he's not done with him yet. Going back. And when I'm through with him, lo, the prince of Greece will come. So there's the second one. The prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So the picture we get is this. The visions of Daniel are of rising and falling kingdoms. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Several times these visions. Right now, Persia is in control. And so when a heavenly emissary attempts to make a move on Daniel to complete a mission from God, the power the encounters is the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And that's what he has to deal with. Then he says, I'm going back. He's going to be finished off. In fact, Persia is going off the scene in a few years. And onto the scene is going to come Alexander the Great and Greece. And this text says, with that power and that kingdom will come a prince. Another one, like this one. And so over that kingdom, there is a, a spirit, a power, that has a tremendous influence, evidently, for evil over that. And interestingly, you have a prince. Verse 21, did you notice that? Nobody fights with me. It didn't tell who the name of the first heavenly emissary was. Nobody fights with me except Michael, your prince. Now, the your there is plural. I checked that in the Hebrew just... So I want to know, is this Daniel's guardian angel? It's not. It's Israel's guardian angel. Your prince, your plural, you people of God, you faithful ones of God, Michael is appointed as your prince. So Persia has a prince, evil. Greece has a prince, evil. you got a prince, Michael. Be encouraged. He's stronger. Now, what do we make of all this? What shall we conclude from from Daniel? Well, I think that we just better say that there is such a thing as spirits, evil spirits. And they are probably of all kinds and powers. And one kind is this kind that's over kingdoms. And if you were to ask me, does America have a wicked, evil Deceiving, destroying prince over it? I would say probably. I, I can't say for sure. I don't know whether to generalize. That's one of the problems I have with, with some of the people in this book is that they state a little bit more positively things that can only be inferred with some tentativity, I think. And so I'm, I'm just willing to say it's pretty likely that uh, Satan has not changed his strategy in the last uh, 2,500 years. 
and that if there was a prince appointed over Persia, a prince appointed over Greece, very likely there's a prince over Minneapolis or over America, and that they have special missions to wreck the church and to wreck mission and to wreck ministry and to create all kinds of chaos and disease and wickedness and corruption. That's their job. Now, what about the New Testament? Any clues? Luke 4, verse 6, Jesus is battling with the devil in the wilderness. And the devil takes him up on a mountain and he shows him the kingdoms of the world. And this is what he says, Luke 4, 6. To you, I will give all the authority, all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, Satan says. I give it to whom I will. Now, Satan's a liar. Mark it. He's a liar. But he almost always lies in half-truths. That's why he gets so much inroads, like he did to... Eve, you will not die. You become like God. Well, sort of. Kills you in the process with his half-truth. Well, he's very inflated here. God rules the world. God is over Satan. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of all lords and gods. But the truth in this word is, Paul said so in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is the God of this world. And he does give authority to whom he pleases. Had Jesus bowed down and said, okay, that's the way I will get my kingdom. I'll bow down, I'll worship you. Satan would have said, great, you can have it. And Jesus would have been the sub-devil in the world. And he would have had all the power that uh, we would want. But he would be serving Satan. So I take it from that little encounter that Satan does divvy up. At least he can. His authority. In fact, you go over to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, I think it is. It says, the dragon, Satan, the ancient deceiver, gave his authority into the hand of the beast. So you have Satan, macro Satan up here. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not omnipresent like God is. And he has these many, many, many demons. And he commissions them. And evidently, one of the ways, according to Daniel 10, that he commissions them is to work to ruin kingdoms and to act at that large lair. He's called the Prince of Demons in Mark 3.22. And so if you ask now, well, what sorts of things do these macro-level territorial spirits do? The question would be answered by noting what the New Testament says that the Prince of Demons does. For example, he darkens the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4. He deceives the whole world. Revelation 12.9. He plants his sons throughout the wheat fields and churches of the world. Matthew 13.39. He takes people captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2. He plucks the seed of the word out of people's minds before they can act on it. That's the battle that's going on right now in this room. Is your mind totally somewhere else? You know why? There's a, a fiery dart lodged in your head called ignore the pastor. Think of dinner. And it's real. 
and horrible. You wonder why your mind runs? Satan hates the Word of God. He plucks it up off the path. He thwarts missionary activity, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He throws ministers in jail, Revelation 2.10, and on and on. So those are the kinds of things that if the prince of demons is doing, I presume his underlings, these territorial spirits and others, are doing as well. So I conclude there is such a thing as territorial spirits over regimes, dominions, governments, realms, maybe institutions, maybe churches, maybe cities. Their job is to corrupt, to make evil, to bring darkness and confusion. Their job is to strive against Christian missions and make as many problems for missionaries as they possibly can and undo ministries and create strife in churches. An illustration of what drives these spirits is found right here in the text. Why did this prince of the kingdom of Persia come out of his hiding and attack this emissary that was on his way to Daniel? Why did he? What's going on here? What frightened him? Verse 21, I believe, is the answer. This great angelic being says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. That's his job. Daniel is on his face, fasting, praying, help me to know the truth. I want to be a faithful leader of my people and a faithful secular instrument of righteousness here in Persia. I don't understand the vision. I don't know how to live out what you've taught me. Send truth to me, God. Make me to know truth that I might live by truth. And immediately God responds with a truth messenger. My job is to teach you what's in the book of truth. Now, Satan, or the prince of the kingdom of Persia, discerns that there's a truth emissary on the way here. And Satan hates truth above all things and people that love the truth. Why? Because truth frees people. John 8.32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Satan wants you bound. The truth sanctifies people. Sanctify them, Father, in the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. Satan hates holiness. He hates goodness. He hates righteousness. And therefore, any time truth is on the way to you, out of the Bible off the radio, from a preacher, by a heavenly visionary, you can count on it, there will be an enemy. There will be an enemy against that truth, because the truth saves, the truth heals, the truth delivers, the truth sanctifies, the truth frees. And Satan is so wicked and hateful. There's nothing good in him. And so he doesn't want you to know the truth. That's what their assignment is. Lies, 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 lies. America today is drowning in a sea of lies. A sea, an ocean of untruth in America today. Our culture is just sinking in the mire of one lie after another that's being perpetrated by perhaps 
the prince of the kingdom of America. What shall we do? Closing two admonitions. Number one, take the supernatural seriously and don't treat it as something domesticated. Use the word domesticated because I was listening to a tape the other day and I was riding on Benjamin's rollers, my bicycle, and uh, I got so upset I had to stop. Lest I fall off in an anger fit. Uh, because the preacher was taking a text that had in it awesome, staggering, stunning, frightening, overwhelming, supernatural truth. And point by point, he was taking the stinger out of it and domesticating it for his straight line, non-supernatural fundamental evangelical conservative audience so they could all walk out without any trembling whatsoever. And I just, just screamed that the word of God was being so domesticated. You know, if it says this, then, you know, Rudolf Bultmann, dead now for 20 years, liberal, and we all say bad liberals, he spent his whole life demythologizing the Bible. So he had about six verses left of Jesus' sayings and, and a few other little remnants of ordinary ethical stuff that we could all agree on. He just demythologized the Bible. And we all say, bad, bad, bad. It's exactly what this straight-line, fundamental, evangelical pastor was doing. He was demythologizing this passage of Scripture. He was taking the, the, the fear out of it, the frighteningness of a being who speaks so that it's like 55,000 voices and you go flat on your face and tremble so that he has to say, wait, 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 I love you. It's okay. You don't have to tremble, man, dearly loved. Fear not. Domesticated supernatural reality is a contradiction in terms. Many people are devoting themselves in the church to keeping the lid on spiritual reality today. So that we all know that prayer is sort of ordinary and spiritual warfare is just sort of ordinary and everything is ordinary and natural. Fits nicely with our, our, the way we we earn our living and the way we live in our houses and the way we relate to each other and, and the way we get along in a secular world. It just fits. Everything fits. Everything fits so that we don't have to look a bit different. Nobody has to be on their face in a mall. You don't have to look any different from anybody because everything's domesticated. It's all made to fit the American dream. And my first admonition to you is take the supernatural seriously. Reckon with the awesomeness of meeting God, the shortness of life, the horror of hell, the reality of demons. I got a phone call last week or two weeks ago from a woman. She may be here for all I know. She doesn't go to Bethlehem, she said. And she called me. 
because she was afraid to call her pastor, and she was afraid to talk to her husband, and she had had such a horrible and awesome experience the night before. She wondered if she was going crazy, and couldn't tell her husband who wasn't a believer because he would have surely thought she was going crazy, and and she described it to me, and I said, well, you're probably not going crazy. I've heard of these things before. She exercised a little bit of spiritual authority and warfare that she knew in the name of Jesus, and this apparition and encounter left and she just wondered am I crazy are these things real I just hope that you're ready when your day comes because right now most of you are living your Christian life naturally as though everything were ordinary Bible reading is ordinary prayer is ordinary worship is ordinary and the inbreaking of a stunning supernatural reality is the last thing in your mind. And my first admonition is get ready. Because even if you don't have an encounter with some awesome being, I'll tell you, when this sky splits and Jesus appears, we're going to be on our faces and we're going to wonder how we lived so ordinarily for him all our lives. My second and last admonition is that we devote ourselves to pray like Daniel. Let me just make this real clear briefly. This is so important because it's like a warning not to misuse what I'm, I've just said. I don't think Daniel had a clue what was going on in heaven. I do not think Daniel was saying, come on, Michael. Come on, Gabriel, where are you? Come on, hit right, do it. I don't, I don't think he had a clue. I think he was praying just like he was last week. And he was wrestling for his people. He was wrestling for his soul. He was wrestling for Israel and their holiness. He was wrestling to understand the vision. And that three weeks of wrestling paralleled exactly the 21 days of the spiritual heavenly battle. And he didn't know what was happening. He was totally stunned when the angel showed up. Now, what that means is this. When we pray here on Friday morning for a half an hour, when we pray Wednesday night from 6 to 6.40, Monday morning from 7 to 7.30, or all night long, or in this room, we don't have to be mentioning angels. There is warfare happening, and our prayer is involved. Our prayer is holding sway in the heavenlies, whether we talk about or think about angels or not. There's no angels mentioned in the Lord's Prayer. But when you pray, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth the way it's done by the angels in heaven. I believe that word coming out of your mouth is power across the universe. Now, I just want to encourage us this year to pray with all our might. I don't think we ought to try to get our heads into the heavens and understand the way the angels are doing things. I just think we ought to pray without ceasing. And as we close this service, there's going to be a prayer team over in that corner, and a prayer team over in that corner, and a prayer team back in that corner. And God may have burdened you today to ask prayer from a prayer team to just ignite you, liberate you, free you. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I praise you for the triumph in Jesus Christ over the evil one as you made public display of the principalities and powers on the cross. I praise you that by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony we triumph, 
loving not our lives even unto death. And we together serve notice to you, Satan, and to whatever underlings you have to torment us at Bethlehem and to discourage us and confuse us and misguide us and destroy us. We serve notice that Jesus is Lord. He is our Lord. And we trust Him. And we clothe ourselves in His righteousness. And we, in His name, declare our standing as children in the family of God. And we are heirs, therefore, heirs with Christ, heirs of God. And we will one day be glorified with Him. Father, grant us to wear the armor well. And to fight not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. In Jesus' great and mighty name, we pray. If you want to affirm that kind of victorious testimony, let's all say amen together. And all the people said, amen.